Have you all heard of AI, artificial intelligence? Uh, our friend Thomas back there introduced me an app for your phone called Chat. I think it's GPT. It's artificial intelligence. And like if you do a Google search, you get all the websites you can look at. Chat, you can just ask it a question. And it is scary how good it is. My daughter-in-law is an engineer for VDOT, and she put in this app, How Do You Engineer a Bridge? And she said it just laid out all the steps exactly the way she would do it. Uh, said, I need some dimensions to be, you know, right on the money. I asked it, like, outline different passages in the Bible for a sermon, and man, it did it right on the money. While Jeff was singing, I just typed in it, who of our founding fathers said something about freedom being linked to morality? Gave me a fairly lengthy animal, uh, answer, but it said one notable American founder who expressed similar sentiments is Benjamin Franklin. He believed that moral virtue was essential for the preservation of liberty and famously stated only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. I didn't know Cindy was going on vacation. I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm 69 years old. I ought to be able to calm down a little bit. But I wake up every morning with something on my mind I want to research. Ask my wife. And if you follow me on Facebook, you'll see sometimes lengthy posts of stuff I'm researching. And originally I was going to preach today on cultural wars versus gospel ministry. And I told Cindy that early in the week, and she ran with it. And I think Thursday I said, oh, changed my mind. I'm going to preach on something different. Here's the title. She said, too late. Bulletin's already printed. And I said, oh, well, I'm preaching what I'm supposed to preach anyway. So I'm preaching a message I titled Convinced. And I don't really have any lengthy scripture passage because it's kind of a topical message of my own experience. We'll, we'll look at some Bible verses as we go. Um, so let me pray, and we're going to just get in the message. Let me see what time it is. Oh, good, I got a lot of time. Father, thank you for the opportunity at this stage of life and only being at this church as long as we have to be able to stand up here before these people. I'm hum humbled by the privilege and responsibility. I pray that you'd refresh Todd and Cindy as they're away and pray that you would use this message. I really expect you to work in somebody's life today. I don't believe anybody's here by accident. And I pray that your spirit would just dominate the service and do what you want to do. In Christ's name, amen. So at the ripe old age of 25, Gail and I felt like we were being called into the ministry and we left home and moved to Winston-Salem, North Carolina to a 
a Bible college, Piedmont Bible College, which now is Carolina University. They've acquired a bunch of other schools that were folding, and now it's a fairly large school um, spread out in what they teach. Uh, I had a five-year program called a Bachelor of Theology degree, and it took me seven years to do it because I was already married, had two kids, had the third one while we were in school. I worked full-time, went to school, took 12 hours, which was considered full-time. So by the end of my sixth year, I'd studied all the world religions, studied philosophy, philosophy of religions, studied psychology and counseling, studied the history of Western civilization, studied church history, where in the heck all the denominations came from. And I worked a second shift job where I had a lot of alone time. We uh, fabricated industrial steel buildings. So I welded and ran a computerized machine and nobody bothered me much. And I was back in my little hole for eight hours, frozen in the winter, baked in the summer. We worked in a big steel building. Company was named Varco Pruden. Probably one of the most famous buildings I helped build was uh, a building to house the Goodyear Blimp in Pompano Beach, Florida. I actually got the royal tour of that building years later when I told them my story and I welded beams on that thing. The captain of the Blimp gave me a tour of the facility. It was pretty fun. But by my sixth year of education, I went into work one night and I said, Lord, my mind is so scrambled studying all this stuff. In one more year, I'm supposed to be going out and leading other people in some kind of ministry. And honestly, at this point, I'm not even sure what I believe. So if you don't convince me, I'm not going into ministry. I'll do something else. <clears throat> I don't know what your relationship with the Lord is like, but mine is don't ask if you don't want to know. If I ask him something, if I ask him to convince me of something, if I ask him to search my soul, he has never missed the opportunity to take me up on that. If I get on my knees and say, Lord, is there anything in my life that's not pleasing to you? I better hang on because within the next couple days, He's going to float something up in my mind. I don't understand how he does it. I don't understand how I prepare sermons. It's a mystery. But somehow through the truth of the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, through everything I've studied in my life, he can go in there and he can just pull to the surface what he wants to show me. So I prayed that prayer. I said, Lord, you're going to have to convince me. I didn't know how he was going to do it. But it wasn't long. It was like the next night or a couple nights later. And by the way, I always use this whiteboard. And I've had complaints that people back there can't even read what I'm writing. And I've worked with the tech team and said, can you like zoom in on this and put it up on the screens? And they said, you can watch it on your phone, and I zoom in on it, but I can't do it in here. So my recommendation is, if you want to see what I'm writing and that bothers you, look at all these empty seats up here. George, can you read what I write? All right, there's enough seats probably in the first five rows for all of you. 
So if you want to be able to see what I'm writing, I'll tell you what I'm writing, but just come on up here and you can read it. So the first thing that the Lord dropped into my head, and man, I pondered for an eight-hour shift, was the New Testament, and I'm not going to write all this, but it's the most reliable ancient document known to man. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the second most reliable ancient documents known to man are the writings of Homer. He was a Greek writer, and he wrote, smart man, we need more of you. He wrote a couple things. The most famous are the Iliad and the Odyssey. And they were stories about the Trojan War. And I think Iliad or Homer wrote like 500 B.C., roughly. And so his writings that they have discovered are the second most reliable ancient documents. And what that means is they look at the number of manuscripts that support those documents, how much variation there is between documents, and how close to the original is the earliest document. So like for Homer's writings, the closest document they have to when he wrote is 900 years later. The earliest for the New Testament is a fragment of the Gospel of John 40 years removed from the original writing. Now we have no original copies of either the New Testament or Homer's writings. I don't remember the exact amount of documents we have for Homer. I want to say it was around, uh, I think, four or five hundred. New Testament, 10,000 documents. So what scholars do is take all these documents that were found in different places, copies of copies, it's called textual criticism, and they study those documents to see like, how close is this document we found in Egypt to this one we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls? How close are they? And then how close are they to what we carry in our laps today? The New Testament has been proven to be 99.5% accurate to the originals. You say, I thought our Bible didn't have any errors in it. It doesn't. All the variations between the text could be put on two pages of our Bible. And none of them have anything to do with anything significant. It should that be an and or a but, that kind of stuff. Some a little more significant, but nothing that impacts any major teaching. So I'm thinking about all this stuff I studied, and guess what? Preparing for this sermon, I put in that AI chat bot. Which has more historical reliability, Homer's writings or the New Testament? And it said the New Testament. 
That was nice. So the Lord established in my thinking that what is written in the New Testament is reliable. It's historically reliable. You can read the stories, and they really happened. Those places really exist. Those people existed. Whether you believe the faith claims of those stories is a whole other issue. But you can trust the stories. So I wore that, I wore that AI thing out the last couple of days. I had my message all done. But I asked this question. What are some facts about Jesus even atheists admit to be true? It says, as an AI language model, I can provide you with some historical facts about Jesus that are widely accepted by scholars, including some atheists. Here they are. His historical existence. Most historians, historians, including atheist scholars, agree that Jesus of Nazareth was a historical figure who lived in the first century. Two, it's crucifixion. There's substantial historical evidence supporting the claim that Jesus was crucified under the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate. Crucifixion is considered a central event in Jesus' life by both religious and secular historians. Three, influence on Christianity. It's widely, widely acknowledged that Jesus, duh, had a significant impact on the development of Christianity, which became later one of the world's major religions. <clears throat> His teachings and life story laid the foundation for the Christian faith. Four, ministry and preaching. Jesus is believed to have been an itinerant preacher who traveled throughout ancient Palestine delivering ethical and moral teachings, often using parables. Many atheists recognize Jesus as an influential religious and moral teacher, even if they don't attribute divine significance to his teachings. Fifth, the baptism by John the Baptist. The baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist is considered a historical event, as it is mentioned in multiple sources, including the New Testament, in the writings of Josephus, a Jewish historian. And the last one, <clears throat> his disciples and followers. Jesus had a group of disciples commonly known as the Twelve Apostles. The existence of these disciples is generally accepted by historians, although specific details about them may be subject to debate. It's not too shabby. So what is believed today, even by atheists, is the New Testament is a historically reliable document. It records real historical events. And just like when Jesus was on earth teaching, it's up to the listener, the reader, taking Grace, Grace's story this morning, is, I'm going to drink that bottle. I'm going to believe it's true. Uh, I'm going to drink a little of it, test it, swish it around my mouth, decide whether I want to swallow it or spit it out. Or for some, you're just going to go, nah, 
So that was the first thing the Lord convinced me of and established in my brain. So I come to work next night, and he drops this passage in my head. John chapter 20, verse 19. And really just the first part of it. This was after Jesus was crucified the evening of the first day of the week. The disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. And I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? And I'm wrestling with, I'm pondering, I ask him to convince me. He's dropping me morsels, kind of leading me down a trail that I didn't know he was leading me down, I do now. I'm like, so what's so important about the disciples hiding for fear in a room? They saw what they did to Jesus. They're his followers, and guess what they're thinking? We're next. So they're scared to death. And that was all he gave me that night, and I'm wrestling with that. next night I come to work. Fortunately, I knew the New Testament fairly well. I could think through all the chapters. So the Spirit had something to work with. And he drops Acts 4. This was next in the morsels. Uh, Peter and John were speaking to the people. Uh, They healed a guy. Verse 5, the next day the rulers, elders, teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. They had all the high yuckety mucks gathered together. And they had brought Peter and John before them and began to question them by what power or what name did you heal this guy? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers, elders, We're being called in account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple. We're asked how it was we healed. And we want you to know this. And all the people of Israel. It was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. A real historical figure. Even atheists believe he was a real guy. And Peter says, it was by him we healed this guy. And you guys crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. And the Lord lays on my heart. What could have changed these guys who a few days ago were shuddering in terror, locked in a room, afraid they were going to be killed for his name. What what happened in them? What changed their hearts to give them the boldness to be on the streets talking to the people that could crucify him, pointing their fingers in their faces, saying, you crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. And you cannot silence us. We will not be silenced. 
And the Lord says, what, what happened in there? What, what changed them? And the answer was they saw the resurrected Christ. He appeared to them. They touched his hands. He showed them his hands, his side. He talked to them. He hung out with them. He lit a, he lit a fire in them that could not be quenched. You tell me, if you're hanging out with a guy for three years, you see him nailed to a cross, you saw him dead, you helped carry him to the grave and laid him in there and rolled a stone in front of it, and he walked out of that thing alive and showed up to you, what would you be willing to do for him? You wouldn't quit telling that, come hell or high water. It wouldn't matter who told you to shut up. If you witnessed that with your own eyes, you would become a world changer. A couple nights later, I come to work, and the word Saul of Tarsus appear in my mind. Do you know Saul of Tarsus? We first see him in the book of Acts, chapter 7. He was a scholar, a Jew. When the first Christian, a guy named Stephen, was martyred, in Acts 7, verse 58, as they covered their ears, Stephen's telling them, full of the Holy Spirit, they're throwing rocks at him, killing him, and he's seeing heaven open and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And he tells them, look, I see heaven open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, and the Jewish people are throwing rocks, cover their ears, yeah, 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 we don't want to hear it. Yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he died. He fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. And Saul became a fire-breathing opponent to the Christian faith. And he was going everywhere he could, stamping out the faith, having people arrested, locked up, chained up. Acts 9, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what Christianity was referred to, whether man or woman, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. He was hell-bent on rubbing out Christianity. 
Look over at Acts 22. <clears throat> Let's start at 20. The phrase before 20. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. So the Lord says to me, I don't know if you all know, Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle. And the Lord says, what happened? How can you or anybody else explain that change? A historical figure, Saul of Tarsus, who hated Christians, becomes Paul the Apostle, who spread the gospel through the known world, planting churches all over, who wrote tons of letters of the New Testament, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, letters to Timothy and Titus. What in the heck happened to this guy? Back to chapter 9, when he was on his way to Damascus, says a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He says, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And he says, I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up. Dust off your sorry butt. He didn't say that. I added that. He was blinded by this, but he said, get up and go into the city and I'll tell you what you must do. And after being knocked off his horse by a blinding light and hearing the voice of Jesus, he signed up for service. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. You got an explanation for that? We have a trustworthy, reliable document recording the story. You say, I don't believe it happened. One quick thing I'll mention is history tells us that all the apostles were martyred for their faith, except John, who was exiled to Patmos. How do you explain that, going from locked in an upper room, scared to death, going out preaching everywhere and being willing to die for a faith? So after all this, 
I go to work one night, and it comes into my mind, so what are the options on the resurrection? What are the options? What could have happened? I mean, we know Jesus was crucified, historical fact. He was laid in a tomb. He had said he would rise three days after he was put in that grave. The Jewish leaders knew he said that, so they put guards at the tomb just in case the disciples would come at night and steal his body and say he rose. But let me ask you something. If you were a disciple back then and you did go steal his body out of the grave and hide it somewhere and say he rose, would you give your life for that? I wouldn't. If I saw him alive, I would. But if I was part of stealing his body and hiding it somewhere, there's no way in heck I'm dying for that. I'm not even going to jail for that. And what if the Roman guards took him? As soon as these guys are out boldly preaching on the street about a resurrected Savior, which was their message, you killed him, but God raised him up, and we saw him. The Romans would have said, oh, really? Who's this then? They would have brought his body out, threw it in the public square, and said, these guys are all a farce. But what if he really did rise from the dead? What if that is why the disciples went from a bunch of chickens to a bunch of courageous gospel spreaders? What if that's what changed Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle? Have you ever studied uh, cause and effect relationships? The cause has to be equal to or greater than the effect. I'd say if you go into a grave and walk out three days later under your own power, that's a pretty big cause. There ought to be an effect. There ought to be a ripple somewhere that could be seen. So I've made a whole bunch of notes before I ask AI the question. I ask, what is the influence of Jesus' teaching on the Western world? You know, I've been preaching for 40, 50 years, 40 years. I'm going to die in probably 10, 15 years, maybe 20, 30. But in 100 years, how many people do you think will remember me? How many of you know your great-great-grandparents' names? Yeah, I know, Bill, you do. You're the only one. You'd have to study Ancestry.com to know that. But most of us don't know. Nobody lasts like this. Here's what AI said. Here's it. The teachings of Jesus Christ have a profound and lasting influence on the Western world. Christianity, the religion that stems from Jesus' teaching, has played a central role in shaping Western civilization, culture, and values. Here are just a few. The moral and ethical framework, Jesus emphasized love, compassion, forgiveness, the, import, the importance of treating others with kindness and respect. These teachings have greatly influenced Western moral and ethical values. 
forming the foundation for concepts such as human dignity, the sanctity of life, and the inherent worth of every individual. Development of Western law. The principles of justice equality espoused by Jesus have significantly influenced the development of Western legal systems. Concept, concepts such as the presumption of innocence, the right to a fair trial, the notion of impartial judgment find their roots in Christian teachings. Social justice and welfare as concern for the poor, the marginalized, the impressed have inspired numerous social justice movements throughout history. Can't read all these things. I'm getting stumbled doing it. Education and science. Most of the major, major scientific discoveries were done by Christians. Isaac Newton, Pascal, how to measure gas. I used every day in my life, and I didn't realize that came from a Christian scientist. All the major institutions in America were founded by Christians. Harvard University, founded by John Harvard. There's scriptures inscribed all over that campus. I've been there. That school was founded to train ministers and magistrates. Yale. Oxford and Cambridge over in England were both Christian universities. Almost all the Ivy League schools were founded by Christians for Christian education. Hospitals. The whole idea of hospitals came from Christianity caring for people and figuring out how to do it better. Not to mention art, literature, music. Governance, democracy, the Western calendar. How many of you have time in the known world starting on your birthday? Before Christ, after Christ? When you look around at the influence of Jesus Christ and his teaching, it is mind-boggling. And I've just scratched the surface. You know, McDonald's is pretty big. There's probably not many places you can go in the world and not be a McDonald's. But there's scarcely anywhere you can go in the world, any major city that doesn't have hundreds of places of worship built for Jesus Christ. When he was done, I said, give me that bottle. I'm going to chug that thing. I believe I will give you my life Because I believe that message is true. You rose from the grave. You died for my sin. You rose from the grave to give me new life. And that life is eternal. I will be with you alive forever. And I will spread that message. And I will tell people. And I will tell them whether they spit the bottle out or whether they drink it. Because I am convinced it's the truth.
Are you? If you believe it's true, there should be evidence in your life. Just like there's evidence his life had a massive impact, there should be a wake behind all of us. A little ripple of influence, of lives that have been changed because they met you. If you believe it. See what else I wrote here. I think I'm done. 1204, that's a miracle in itself. Proof Jesus, that's proof Jesus lives right there, baby. If you're really interested and you're not a believer yet, I'm going to tell you, if you start digging, the evidence is overwhelming. I heard a preacher on the radio last week, and I'm going to close with this, really. These two, man, I wish I remembered their names. I probably could get it quick on that chat bot, but I'm not going to do it. These two uh, science scientists were talking, and they were both atheists. And they said, why don't we do the world a service? And one of them said, you know what? I'm going to use my science. I'm going to do research. And I'm going to write a book that destroys Jesus Christ, his death, and resurrection. I'm going to prove it's not true. And the other guy says, all right, I'm going to do research and I'm going to eliminate Saul's conversion. Both of them did the research. Both of them became believers. And they both wrote books. One defending the gospel of Jesus Christ and the other defending the life of Paul and his conversion. And they're in the libraries today. There are numbers of scholars who set out to disprove Christianity and end up being believers. One in our day that's famous is Lee Strobel. Check him out in his writings. So, let me ask you. I gave you how the Lord convinced me. If you're here this morning and you've been kicking the tires, been sipping at the bottle, but you know personally you have never just put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. You've never said, I, I believe, I trust you with my life and my salvation and my eternal life. And what, what a great day to say, give me the bottle. I want the rest. I want more. I want to start learning more about him. If this is historically reliable and even atheists say so, I, I believe it's feasible. I believe it's possible. I believe it's true. And I went in. I tell you, you'll be lining up with some of the greatest people that ever lived if you join the party. And we're going to have a song of invitation. And I know this is really super scary for somebody to step out in front of a bunch of people and come up and say, I want, I want to be saved. But Jesus said, if you believe in me, you'll, you'll be saved. You'll become my child. I will forgive all your sins. 
If I needed that, I wouldn't care who was looking. If I believed and he convinced me, I would say, man, let's nail this down. I, I want to make that decision. I would encourage you to come up and talk to me. I'll stay all afternoon if I have to. And I will help you make sure your faith is solid and you know him as your savior. But if you want to make that decision and you don't want to jump out in front of these people, how about if you find a piece of paper somewhere, I don't care if it's a prayer request sheet or the birthday on the back of the birthday calendar, there's a blank sheet. Would you just put your name and phone number down there and say, I want to talk? I'll come to your home. I'll meet you at Starbucks. I'll do whatever, and I will answer all the questions I can, and I will help you make that decision. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And thank you that even atheists look at most of the major tenets of Christianity and say, yeah, can't argue with that. But the facts themselves really don't matter as much as how we respond to the facts. That's where the change happens. That's where the miracle occurs. So I've laid out some truth today, Lord. But only you can open blind eyes. Only you can open a heart to want to receive you and believe the truth they've heard. I pray that you would do that in the lives of people today. We'll give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen. I hope for many of you your faith was strengthened today hearing this. And I pray with everything in me if there's anybody here that doesn't know him for sure today. That that was enough to convince you. You've seen it mapped out. You've seen the truth of the story. You've seen life change. You've seen a guy that went from Saul, the persecutor, to a guy that has churches named after him all over the world, St. Paul's Cathedral. What are you waiting on? Let's do it today. Why don't we stand up while Logan plays? We can sing, and it makes it easier to come out, and surely too, all right.